Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Fanzine Podcast. Just before we get started with the show, this is your host, Tony Fletcher. I want to invite you to sign up for the weekly newsletter over at tonyfletcher.substack.com. It'll give you updates on this podcast, my other podcast, all forms of recommendations with a midweek update, a long-form weekend read. Sign up is absolutely free. There are interview archives, uh, additional podcast features, and you will be able to to see uh, more of the fanzines that uh, we're talking about on this show. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. Thanks again. Now on with the pod. It's the jamming fanzine. Fanzine. Podcast. I mean, the thing about a fanzine was holding it in your hand, right? And looking at the way it had been put together and the punk way it had been put together, quite quite frankly. And it had a staple in it, you know, and and that was that is a fanzine, right? Welcome in everybody, or perhaps just welcome back to the Jamming Fanzine Podcast, or perhaps just the Fanzine Podcast. So for those of you who were around when this show was first on the air, it's been a minute, hasn't it? Yep, it's actually been an entire year since we went off air, so to speak. And for those of you who are new to the show, and I hope there's lots of you, well, you are welcome. It's lovely to have you on board. Just giving you the very quick backdrop. The Jamming Fanzine podcast was initially just designed to be a promo tool for a book called The Best of Jamming, Selections and Stories from the Fanzine That Grew Up, 1977 to 86. It was a compendium of the fanzine that I put together back in the day, that day being sort of oh, those years that we I just mentioned. In fact, it uh, the book was published by Omnibus Press in late 2021. It came out gorgeous. We tracked down a whole bunch of former contributors I hadn't spoken to for years and figured that it was so much fun just tracking them down. I should interview them for a podcast series. It was just something really nice to have on board. When the book came out, we got through 10 of them, uh, spoke to some musicians, spoke to some of the art people, um, to my old printer, Jolly, and uh, excuse the pun because I'm terrible at these, uh, had a jolly old time doing it. And after 10 episodes, it, it ran its course. But I did say at that point that I was attracted to the idea of keeping the podcast going as more of a general fanzine podcast. I became aware by doing my book about jamming that there's a lot of other books being put together about and compiling a lot of other fanzines, as you'll find out on the first few episodes of this new series season. And I thought I might even do that like it's straight after the uh, 10th episode a year ago but I needed to finish a new book of my own a second memoir set in the early 80s so the fanzine days are very much a part of that it's called Teenage Blue it will be getting published I'll give you the info as we have it and I had other things to get on with uh, but I kept mulling the idea over and somewhere in the autumn late autumn late fall of 22 just went time to go for it no point just sitting around thinking of these ideas um, most people who put a fanzine together have been in a similar frame of mind like I think I can do this you know what I'm just going to go ahead and do it because it's a culture that's existed for a long time and it continues to exist and the guests on this first episode have written a book that pretty much lays that out on paper. The book is called We Peaked at Paper, An Oral History of British Zines. It seems a really good place to kick off this series slash season, although 
I, I'm almost certain you will see it numbered as just episode 11. I also want to just let you know that this show is only initially going to run uh, on a monthly basis. I have another podcast that I also already relaunched. It's called One Step Beyond. It's about positively engaging with the world outside our door. It occasionally touches on music, but music is not its focus. It's very much about the outdoors and about uh, just, I don't know, trying to make travel, trying to make the world a better place and doing uh, a podcast every two weeks if you're not going to get paid for them is way enough work. So if I alternate each of these on a monthly schedule, I'm still putting together a show every two weeks with everything else I'm doing, which at least for now is going to have to be enough for you out there, though I do think we might be on to something with this fanzine podcast uh, just about the fanzine culture in general stick around at the end i'll tell you a little bit more about the book provide some links and also talk about the uh, episodes you can look forward to in the coming months and with that i'm going to welcome you whether you're coming back or you're here for the first time officially to the fanzine podcast with hamish ironside and gavin hogg and their all history of british zines All right, welcome to the Jamming Fanzine podcast. Gavin Hogg, Hamish Ironside. Uh, who is who? Introduce yourselves so we know your voices. Hi, I'm Gavin. And I'm Hamish. All right, and now I've got you on here because you have produced this incredible book, which I am just loving. It's called We Peaked at Paper, an oral history of British scenes by the two of you. Um, and it, it looks initially like it's an, uh, like another academic book, Um because it's printed as a quality hardback, but really it's it's a collection of very fanzine fanzine like interviews with a number of fanzine editors from across the ages. And I want to stress that at the beginning because any, anybody who sees the cover might think, oh yeah, academic book. So I mean, God, initial questions, you know, like who did you interview, why, and and how, and why do you take on this endeavor? Well. Uh, we we both produced fanzines in the early 90s, and that's how I knew Gavin. We uh, we read each other's fanzines. Both of ours only lasted a few issues, but uh, we stayed in touch ever since. And we both sort of dropped out of fanzine reading and buying, um, as a, I think a lot of people probably did around, you know, the time the internet became readily accessible. But just, um, I don't know, five or six years ago, I can't remember why, but I did start thinking, I wonder, you know, if there are still fanzines going and, you know, I wonder what's happened to people like Karen Blaze, you know, the people who did the big fanzines when we were doing ours. And it just got me more and more interested. So I started talking to Gavin about the idea for a book like this. And Gavin, yeah. what did you say? You obviously said yes, but were, was there any trepidation? No, not at all, because it was something I'd thought about myself in the past. Um, and I'd always thought it would be a really good story is kind of going back and speaking to zine editors, past and, and present, uh, to find out about their, their story and what led them to do it and their experiences and, and then what it led on to after that. So as soon as Hamish mentioned it, I thought, yeah, that's a great idea, and I could just see the value in it straight away. So, um, and I think my enthusiasm and keenness was exactly what Hamish wanted to hear, and and uh, and then we kind of rode off into the sunset on a beautiful adventure, you know. 
<laughs> yeah, and you and talking of riding, you 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 did this very 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 old school, which uh, I think we need to stress up front. Rather than even do interviews by phone, which is relatively old school, you absolutely refused to do them by email. You literally drove to everybody to meet them, uh, which probably explains why you didn't interview me. It's all right; you don't have to explain. <laughs> it would have been it would have been a big a big uh, uh, airplane journey, but. Um, you you met everybody in person up and down Great Britain, and it is as we say, it's an oral history of British um, fanzines. The oral aspect is because this is something I find fascinating from the outset. The interviews are all Q and A, and you've done this very old fashioned fanzine thing of leaving them kind of verbatim, with ums and ahs and tangents and very little attempt. I mean, there is some. I think you confess to some. But it, it, it's very fanzine, like in that tradition of I transcribed an interview. Here you go. Uh, have at it. Uh, at the same time, it's slightly strange because of the professional format. And we'll talk about who published this in a, in a little in a little while. But um, it's also very professional. So it's kind of weird. It's like this modern update of a sort of, you know, uh, DIY format, like a professional update of a DIY format. That's the first thing that struck me. What do you want to sort of say about that, about this very Q&A aspect of everybody that you interviewed for this book? Yeah, I'd, I'd not thought that's quite interesting, talking about that juxtaposition between the, the format and and then the, the style of the interviews. But I think from quite early on, because that Q&A um, style is it's a kind of quintessential fanzine style, really, isn't it? So it is. Um, when we were talking about it, I we, yeah, we established that, you know, that was kind of the way we wanted to do it, almost as a, well, a way, a way of making sure that we got all the information in that we wanted, but also kind of as, as a little bit of a, I don't know, for want of a better word, a tribute to to the fanzines that we'd enjoyed. I, I don't know if Hamish's got any other thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I always like, um, I always like interviews in that format because I like not just sort of getting the information from people, but getting an idea of the way people speak you know, and their their turns of phrase, everything everything's very telling. I, I like uh, I like to read. I mean, I like to read plays as well, and uh, I always think I like to read them on the page because when you see them performed, to me, it never lives up to the way I read them in my head. You know, and so I always really like this um, this dialogue format. And the other thing I really liked in fanzines was um, you do see some fanzine interviews, band interviews, where they say, you know. Oh, tell us about your new album and about the tour and stuff like that. But you also get some where, like, they might get into an argument or they might sort of start talking about something completely off topic and random, you know, and that was the sort of thing I liked. And when I was doing my fanzine, um, I sort of got more into that, like talking about uh, things that, you know, weren't, weren't really anything to do with the band to see what they would say. Because otherwise, when you read the sort of mainstream music press, it's all very regimented, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and that was always one of the great things about fanzine culture, the irreverence, and the irreverence uh, shines through both in the uh, digital, I should say, copies of your own fanzines you sent me, and and in the book in general. You allow yourself to go on these tangents, and you you, you, you try not to be too academic in what you're asking people. But I'm sure people are like, okay, so all history of British fanzines, what are we talking about? Are we... For a lot of people, and this is quite selfish of me, there's a sort of golden age of fanzines that's sort of post-punk. And, you know, the selfish aspect is I was part of that. And I've learned from writing about music over the years that everybody has their golden age. Everybody should have their, their golden age. So what was really interesting to me is, although you did interview Mark Perry of Sniffing Glue, 
you got a couple more interviews barely with people from that era, Mick Middles and Stuart Holm. And uh, then you jump forward, which I, which I actually think is, is great because I, to, from my perspective, I'm kind of, I lived that. I'm kind of done with the post-punk period and reading another book about uh, a culture that I was in. I mean, I love it, but I, I, I'm happy to read something fresh. But you attempted to start with Mark Perry and Sniffing Glue, and you didn't. You went way, way, way back. Uh, what did you discover about the first British fanzines? And I do believe that in the first chapter, the first interview, we actually date the first British fanzine back to when would it be? I think it was 1937, something like that. It's certainly the 30s. That's right. So, yeah, we, we, we became aware at some point, just sort of reading up a little bit. We didn't want to do a huge amount of research, um, but uh, we did become aware that there were like these science fiction fanzines that were publishing long before the punk fanzines. And um, we, we decided to devote one chapter to that. I should say we, we, we decided probably pretty early on. We didn't have a very clear idea of what the book was going to be like when we set out, but I did think it would go chronologically and we wanted to cover uh, sort of as wide a span as possible of uh, fanzine history. But I was sort of initially assuming fanzine history started with punk and then sort of to find out that there were actually some going back to the 30s, you know, that... Uh, that added an incredible amount to the to the uh, time span. So you, Hamish, are the one who, who who opted to answer that. Did you do that uh, research, that interview uh, individually? It looks like some of them you did together, but a lot of them you did individually. Who did you track down to talk about the science fiction fanzines? And uh, that person, I think, was able to uh, point you to the very, very first British fanzine. Yeah, it was a chap called Rob Hansen. And uh, Gavin and I were talking throughout the process about possible interviews we could do. I, I live in uh, London, Gavin's in Sheffield. So we had a sort of idea that, you know, um, I'd do all the ones down south and Gavin would do the ones in the north. And that way we'd sort of cover the whole country. But um, I think Gavin found out about Rob. I can't remember how, but Rob Hansen yeah. is the, uh, the sci-fi guy. I think it was through, uh, I think I saw something about his fan site in uh, 14 Times and thought, oh, he seems like an interesting guy and passed on to Hamish and then you got in touch with him, didn't you? Yeah, yeah he's got and... this incredible library of um, of old science fiction fanzines, doesn't he? As well as producing one himself, I believe. That's right, yeah. So we were sort of, uh, we were. I was interviewing him about his own fanzine. That was about half the interview. But also he's a proper historian of the... Um, the science fiction fan fan community in Britain, and uh, he was heavily involved in it. And I found it so interesting because I'd never thought about it because I've never been into science fiction. But what I became aware of uh, was that the science fiction fanzines, from pretty early on, they would have very little to do with the actual science fiction literature. And if you read some of them, like Rob's own fanzine, which came out in the mid-70s, um, it, it, it's it's very very similar to a lot of music fanzines or even the personal fanzines where where they're writing about sort of train journeys and what they had for to eat in the pub and things like that. Yeah, that it's that irreverence again. It seems to be this continuum that runs through fanzine culture. Uh, yeah, I've, I 
I'm going to ask later on about because you ask a lot of people to, to define a fanzine. And certainly one of the things that comes up, whether people note it or not, is that sense of irreverence. We don't have to be too um, formal here. And, you know, that's, uh, I, I think that's the fact that that connects, uh, that it connects a science fiction fanzine to sniffing glue to your own fanzines, which I'm, I'm going to ask you about in some more detail, to pretty much everybody else that you interview. I, I, you know, that to me is a real continuum. And, and the way you noted that these science fiction fanzines were, that was what they, they hung it on, but they they just found a way to communicate with each other and not everything had to be about the latest science fiction magazine or movie, right? Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of it was about them trying to find a community of like-minded people. I think Rob speaks in the interview about at the time, in the early days of science fiction, it was a very, very niche thing and uh, and there'd maybe only be a couple of people in a town or a city that liked this stuff. So it was really a way of, you know, finding other people who like the same things that you did and developing friendships and swapping ideas and, and thoughts. So that was the important aspect of it, I think. Yeah. And there were other small magazines before the punk era, for sure. But they, they always felt to me as somebody who was growing up in London and, and having that same obsession that I think you guys did and a lot of the fans and editors do, getting into music really young, going around shops, the, the the few magazines I would see did look more like small magazines rather than fanzines with everything that uh, we will we will come to define a fanzine as. So it makes sense that you then jump in with sniffing glue and things get 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 musical. Now uh, with the interviews being split geographically, so Hamish was it you who interviewed Mark Perry? It was yes, uh, right, yeah. Well, one thing, one thing that was just classically fanzine about it, I had to laugh, was despite the fact that there is an anthology of, of Sniffing Glue, it appears you went down there without ever having seen a copy, which um, uh, it was certainly a copy in full, which I found sort of hilarious and totally in keeping with the fanzine ethic. Um, did you not know about the book? Could you, was, it, was it hard to get? Was it out of print? Was it not available digitally? Couldn't pirate it? Or did you just think... I'll just ask Mark what it was like to do Sniffing Glue and see if he'll show me a few copies. Yeah, um, I, I think, uh, well, I did I did become aware of the book and um, I did see how much they were, but I think I was seeing copies for like 60 quid or something and I just thought, well, I think that's a bit too expensive. I did eventually get one for a lot cheaper than that, but um, Mark brought it along to our interview. He doesn't own copy any original copies of Sniffing Glue, but uh, he lent me a copy of the book. And But uh, you're right. I mean, I was the covers are easy to find online, and you can get like a couple of um, pages of an interview, fairly easy to find. Um, but uh, I, I mean, this is another difference between uh, the science fiction fanzines and the music fanzines. The science fiction fanzines have been incredibly well archived digitally. They've been you know, there've been lots of science fiction groups that have, you know, stayed in contact and cooperated to to get a central archive. Whereas finding uh, music fanzines, it's very very difficult. And you know, the the physical paper fanzine, unless it's a really um, relatively big one, um, they're very next to impossible to find now. And a lot of them, if you can find them, they're collectors' items. So, um, yeah, it, it's it's quite difficult to see a copy. And so 
no offense to missing you, you and jamming from the book, but uh, when when we started <laughs> off, I think everyone's no, sort of, you know, even if you're quite involved in the fanzine world, your sort of knowledge is quite patchy. And if you start like reading fanzines in about sort of 88, 89, as I did, um, the fanzines from like even 85, 86, they're long gone, you know, um, there's nowhere to buy them. I mean, if you get a new copy of like a Blaze, you might be able to order a back issue. But by and large, you know, they'd um, they'd sunk, sunk without trace. You've reminded me that the CUNY, the City University of New York, is trying to arch digitally archive all manner of fanzines and reached out to me a couple of times. Yeah, now they are worth something, but it's that thing at the time. You kind of just go, I'm just you know, doing this for fun, it's 50 copies of, you know, maybe I'll remember to keep one. And then somebody's begging, or you're writing for an interview and you have to send off your last copy. And you sometimes just figure, well, I'll buy one next time I see one in a shop. I'll buy my own fanzine or you don't get the chance to do so. So I understand that the other thing about going in and talking to Mark without having really seen Sniffing Glue, um, it reminds me that I got an interview lined up with Adam Ant in 1978 before the first single came out. I'd never heard a note of Adam and the Ant's music. And I went and sat with him and uh, I had to literally confess, I, I like, I haven't heard anything. I just know about you. Um, and similarly, when, once we got the fanzine going, you go knocking on dressing room doors and ask to interview people uh, before they went on stage. And, you know, you'd just be, all right, what's your band's name? I mean, you sort of start from there. I didn't like doing that much. And it, uh, it wasn't the way I really wanted to run a fanzine, but we did it now and then. Um, yeah. Or the did band, you find, the band did you you find them yeah. mostly, you know, pretty friendly about that? Like, was Adam quite uh, okay about that? He was utterly wonderful. Then uh, he was he was incredibly polite and professional, and clearly ambitious. And sent me a gorgeous letter after I published the fanzine, or the, whatever whatever that edition of jamming could be called, and. Um, later, I was very disappointed with where he went and the extent to which he was ready to, you know, uh, turn his back on a lot of what he said to me at that point. But at the time, it 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 meant a lot, and he was very aware that his audience was kids. I think he did actually call us the "You're my bread and butter," the kids. You know, our audience is very a lot of them are under sixteen. That's where all the energy is. So he was he recognised doing that. The other one that comes to mind with me, the one with the dressing room, is uh, Scritti Politti their very, very first gig, and we kind of just knew them by name. I hadn't even heard the Peel session or uh, Skankblock Bologna. Uh, very, very first show at Acclam Hall, and I ended up having a massive friendship with Scritti Politti. I would go to their squat every time I went through Camden Town, and, um, you know, that came out of knocking on their door and saying, can we interview you? So that's how friendships are formed, I think, a lot of the time. Am I yeah, right? Yeah, that's brilliant, isn't it? I mean, that's, yeah. uh, because I, I think another thing that I'd thought about fanzines was it can feel like quite a thankless task. You know, you produce it. It's quite difficult to sell it. Um, and you feel like you've put an awful lot of yourself into it. And then, you know, I, my feeling was you don't get much response. Well, this is true. Uh, maybe this is a good point to talk about your own fanzines. I was going to follow somewhat chronologically. But as you point out, you did them in the 90s. So. What were your own fanzines? How long did they last? And uh, I guess, Hamish, you're saying that it felt kind of thankless. Gavin, you know, did you have the same 
thought about it. The same feeling <laughs> yeah, absolutely. at the end of it. Yeah, I um, I did two issues of Bag of Tricks and Candy Sticks. I started. I first got involved because, um, well, I bought a few fanzines over the years, sort of when I was at Sixth Form, you know, sort of sixteen, seventeen, and then uh, away to Polytechnic. And I think in my second year was when I bought issue one of Hamish's fanzine, and we developed um, a friendship on the back of that. Just um, pen pals at that point because he was living uh, down in Reading, and I was up in Middlesbrough. Um, but after I'd got some of Hamish's fanzines, uh, I started doing, I did a few interviews for him. I was kind of like the, very much like the book. I was kind of the Northern correspondent and I interviewed a few bands up there for, um, for Saudage. And then I just thought, actually, yeah, I could do my own. You know, it kind of gave me the confidence to do that. So, um, yeah, I think Bag of Tricks and Candy Sticks, the first one came out probably early 91 and then the second issue about a year later and, I talk in the book, there's kind of an afterword in the book, a little interview with me and Hamish to kind of sum up our experience of doing it. And uh, I was talking about taking them to 1991 Reading Festival. I took about 40 with me thinking, yeah, I'll I'll sell these. Uh, It'll be great. I'll make a bit of money back. Forgetting entirely that I was shy and awkward and couldn't really talk to anyone. I think in my head, I just thought... I'll reinvent myself and I'll suddenly become this really outgoing, <laughs> confident <laughs> young man. And uh, and then when I got there, the harsh reality was that, no, I wasn't and I wouldn't approach anyone. I couldn't even give them away. So I came back with as many as I'd taken down. Oh my so, God. yeah, in many ways, it was a thankless task, but it was also a lot of fun as well um, in terms of, I, th- I think the key moment for me was when you, when you first uh, get the box of zines from the copy centre. I used Catford Copy Centre that Hamish had told me about. And I remember still now kind of getting that box of 100 zines all packed up tightly, coming by a courier and opening it. And it's the first time I'd ever seen my own stuff like that, you know. Uh, and it, it was just a fantastic feeling. There, there, you can't beat that feeling, uh, it's, well, especially if it turns out good, which it doesn't always. Uh, Hamish, what was your experience other than maybe maybe concluded and it was thankless so uh in you know you can elaborate on that uh what tell so so gavin gave gave the name of it away i did want to know how to pronounce it so so i guess gavin pronounced it right yeah well it's a portuguese word and i don't speak portuguese so i'm probably i've probably been pronouncing it wrong all along uh but we i i've always said saudage yeah i mean one of the features as you have seen of the fanzine is that on the cover i used a sort of invented script for the title of the fanzine so you can't very easily see so we go into a little side conversation there about the pronunciation and meaning of saudage uh you can go look both up and we also i was complimenting hamish on his excellent writing in that fanzine and his uh very provocative and wonderful interview with david ike then i felt the need for us to explain who david ike is and you know on reflection it's all a little tangential and anyway then gavin's dog started barking and though i have done my best to mute it out if you hear it uh it was two floors or three floors down and didn't seem to be much we could do about it it was classic fanzine timing we picked back up with me uh just trying to figure where we are and keep the conversation moving i want to run through a lot of the interviews you got and we don't have all day to do it but what i what i loved was the commonalities with so many people that you spoke to and and as a you know, former fanzine editor myself so much of it came back there, there's the initial sense of creativity this realization that I can do this. And there are people in your book, and you say yourself, Gavin, you were very shy. There are lots of people that were introverts. I mean, I was having a hard time at school. I wasn't a tough kid, but I knew my music. So I was happy to retreat to my bedroom 
and put together a fanzine. And lo and behold, if it didn't eventually, after, I mean, it made me popular with musicians before it made me popular at school. But, you know, I was like, I can do something like this. It is doable. So you have that joy, but then you also have the, you know, there's a couple of enormous uh, hurdles to, to, that you have to jump to do a fanzine before we over-romanticize this. Uh, one is finding a way to print it. And the other is how to sell it. And you, you know, you tackled that second one, Gavin. Not everybody has the balls or, or whatever it, the word is to go up to people at gigs. So, or to walk into a record shop, which can be, you know, famously snooty and say, I've, I've done a fanzine. Do you want to, do you want to sell it? So we, we all have those hurdles, but I, 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 almost everybody you interviewed talked about this same process, and quite a few of us had what we call collating parties. Um, nothing as sexual as it sounds. They were getting your friends round to staple the staple the fanzine and get an assembly line going, and you might get them pizza or just say, "I'll play some of the new singles I got for free," which was usually enough, and it was a way to stay out of trouble. Um, did do you feel the same way that as you talk to the people that you talk to for the book, and you're welcome to to give examples of who you talk to? that the, the, these same commonalities were coming up through the years and regardless of who you talk to? Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, kind of collating and stuff, I remember Karen Ablaze talking about that, getting loads of friends around and having all the pages uh, on the floor. And, and, you know, what I kind of said before about... Um, I, th I think one of the main themes that, that came through very strongly, which I'd not really thought about before we started the book, was one of community, which is, I guess is kind of what you're alluding to a bit there, really. Um, so when we talked to Mark Hodkinson, who um, grew up in Rochdale, and he had a band. So this was, I think it was around about 79, 80, that kind of time. And he, he was just at secondary school. Um and they started the fanzine really as a way to kind of promote the band, but then also to reach out and build up a, a community of of people um, that were into the same kind of music as them. It felt from speaking to him, that was one of the ones that we did jointly, um, one of, I think, only two that we did together, um, that him and his friends were felt very much in opposition to the town where they grew up. And this was really a way of them just kind of planting a flag in the turf, if you like, and, and saying we're here and, and let other people kind of come to us, you know. Um, and I think also another commonality, and again, it's something you spoke about a little bit before when you were talking about Adam and Tony and saying that how encouraging he was, was that thing of older people, whether it's musicians or someone like John Peel, being really encouraging and how important that is at a young age, Um to, to have, you know, an adult, and particularly an adult that you kind of admire and, and respect saying, just validating you and, and talking to you and giving you a bit of positive feedback. That's incredible. I mean, I for all that it was hard for me to sell my fanzine, I sent a copy to John Peel and, and he read out my name and address on the radio. Um, and I got a few um, orders from that. But even if I'd not had a single order from it, it was amazing just to hear John Peel announcing you know my name and the name of my fanzine that was enough for me to be honest that was worth the money I'd spent on the fanzine so um I think yeah I think that encouragement is is really important I remember um so we interviewed Pete Perfides who's obviously now a sort of well-respected and well-known music journalist and he was talking about interviewing um, people like Julian Cope and um Robert Forster and, and Lindy Morrison from the Go-Betweens and just how nice they were with him as a as a shy young schoolboy. Um so yeah, yeah I think Pete, that's really Pete, 
Yeah, it is. Pete had a classic story where he had caught, he, he learned to call up the local venue, uh, I think the Digbeth Hall in Coventry or something, and just speak, asked to speak to a tour manager and arrange an interview on the day. And he got right through to Julian Cope, who said, yeah, come on down. And of course, Julian said, just ask my tour manager, Callie. And for, uh, by the sound of it, forgot to tell the tour manager, which is just so common. And that's just one of, the, again, the many hurdles as fanzine editors you have to cross. You come to somebody who goes, I know nothing about it, mate. Yeah, piss off. And you have to say, no, I spoke like I got a letter. I spoke to them. And they're like, you didn't, you didn't speak to them. You're like, I did. I waited outside the dressing room last night, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, other people that you mentioned, I wanted to maybe jump ahead. Uh, it's not that far ahead. You, in, you talked about Karen Ablaze a couple of times. Uh, she's somebody I am in contact with, but I was in the States pretty much by the time she was doing her fanzine. I want to note, uh, and you can observe on this as well, we're about a good third of the way through the book before you've got a female editor. And I'm not surprised uh, because it was a very male culture. And she addresses some of this in her interview. And I was actually thinking if she would be great to get on the show. Um, she addresses some of that. Can you tell me how important a blaze was to you? And if you don't mind summarizing for her, what are some of the hurdles that she talked about that were quite on top of the ones that everybody had to face? Well, for, I mean, for both of us, Gavin did the interview with with Karen, but we were both readers of Ablaze. And um, I should just say more generally, we one of the things we wanted to do, we wanted in, in the book, we wanted to cover as broad a sort of spectrum as possible, not only in sort of um, chronologically, but also uh, subject matter and um I mean, in, in all respects, really. And in particular, we didn't want to just focus on the really big fanzines. Uh, we wanted to include those that might have only printed 50 copies, things like that. But we didn't want to completely neglect the big ones. And uh, I would say Sniffing Glue and Ablaze were the two really big ones um, in the book. And as you say, Sniffing Glue uh, got up to about 15,000 copies by the end of its run. And I think Karen built it up to a pretty steady, I think it was about 5,000 she was printing. Is that right, Gavin? That sounds about right, yeah. It was a what was much the, bigger front run than uh, Beggar Tricks and Candlesticks. <laughs> what was the appeal of a, of a blaze? What, was, what, what made it special? I think it was the comprehensiveness of it. They had an amazing review section. Um, so any record that, um, that was covered in, in the weeklies, but also you know, tens and hundreds more would, would be covered. So anything that you could find, you'd probably see a review of uh, in a blaze. And also um, they had a, a huge fanzine review section too. Um, and yeah, again, it's that kind of irreverence that, that we spoke about earlier. So in, in the interviews, you know, Karen had a very sort of well-developed fanzine personality um, and didn't you know? Didn't really kind of take any truck with uh, with anyone, <laughs> but but it was really refreshing to read. You know, um, she was always very honest and very forthright in her opinions, and it just made for really good um, interviews and you know good copy. Right, and it was an influence on the two of you in terms of starting your fanzines in the early nineties. Well, it was definitely one that I I always got. Yeah, I think I can't remember the very first issue I got. It probably would have been round about issue six or seven, but then I got got the rest of the run from there um i think it was one of those maybe for kind of our generation it was the you know the sniffing glue or the uh 
you know the rocks or the jamming or you know whatever it was one of those that you, you really had to get um and it had yeah it had all the in terms of the music it covered as well it was all the stuff that i was really listening to so which yeah, she had some really big bands in there didn't she i think this yeah, is something, one every, of the what, things we celebrate was, in the fanzines yeah. is uh their amateurishness but at the same time some of the people who were doing the big ones were quite professional in a way and that's one of the things i think about a blaze it was sort of almost halfway between a fanzine and a proper magazine and you know i'd like to think it had the best um aspects of both really and the other the other big one i remember from around the same time was grim humor done by a guy Mm -hmm. called richo who's um you know still involved in music i think there's a book you can get of grim humor as there is of a blaze as well where they're all collected uh yeah, it's become quite the thing now, actually. And you've, uh, uh, yours is a compendium of interviews, but I've, I've uh, got another interview in the bag with a couple of people who've com- compiled their own fanzines, and and then additionally, once they've done histories of um, their city scenes and city fanzines. So that's that's going to be coming right down the line. There is a cult, you know, an interest in people uh, archiving this. I think I mean, I'm going to talk maybe just a little bit for Karen and and. Uh, move on, yo. She does. She's very clear about the boys club that was the music press, and that uh, a lot of people just got to gravitate very quickly, get promoted very quickly from running a fanzine to writing for music papers. Um, and I, yeah, I think that's really, really relevant. You know, I think that, that, that we have to be honest and just say for a long, long time, women were just locked out. It was like, well, there's that there aren't any role models, so we can't do this. So I think people like Karen are important in that regard, uh, as is Janine Booth, who I did interview for the first series, uh, people who actually said, I don't care, I'm going to do it. I just think that's got to be, we've got to give credit for that. Um, but a couple of chapters later, you've interviewed Sean Patterson, um, if, again, if I pronounce the name right, and she's a um, you know, well-known media figure in the UK. And I was looking, and it's kind of from a similar period, and I, I was just wondering in terms of where people's careers go, because you've already mentioned Pete Perfidis, uh, Mark Hawkinson became a publisher, uh, quite a few people have ended up with, with journalistic careers. Um, is some of it just about the way that the odds fall, the chips fall, about what happens to people? Because Karen had this unfortunate thing where um, she wrote something about Sonic Youth, and they not only took her to task, they decided to sort of publicize it and, and try and, I guess, in a way, bury her. And then I read that she got mugged on her birthday um, and these two things sort of coincided and really, really affected her enthusiasm for what she was doing in her life. Um, and then there's Sean at the same time. It was like, like she starts a fanzine because she met up with another girl, Nikki Stewart, through the pen pal section of Smiths Indeed, which is a fanzine you write about, dedicated band fanzine. And the importance of the Smiths is very noted in, in your book, We Peaked a Paper. Um, so Sean sort of goes off and it, it sort of all takes off for her very quickly. Um, you know, what, 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 what's going on there? What's the difference there, if you think? I, I think, like you said, it's partly just how the chips fall sometimes and those kind of sliding door moments and, and just a bit of serendipity. With, with Sean and Nikki, they did three issues of um, How to Win Fli- Friends and Influence People, which was kind of... <laughs> tangentially about music but about lots of other things as well I mean I mean they well they tended to interview more kind of tv personalities I guess than anyone else it was quite a, a strange one to categorize but you know very, very well, funny it's humorous, and, and, really isn't it it's all yeah, about having a, yeah. having a laugh you know with these 
you know, figures off the TV like uh, Jim Bowen and Thora Hurd and people like that who are intrinsically comic, I think. And uh, I thought it was a brilliant idea. I didn't know about it at the time. It was until um, Gavin interviewed Sean. Uh, I hadn't heard of it or seen a copy, but uh, actually Sean has uh, digitized them. So it's quite easy to access the copies of that. And it's uh, it's just great fun, isn't it? It's um, yeah. It's just a different kind of fanzine. And I think she she just got lucky in that she sent a couple of issues off to Smash It's uh, and they really liked them and said, yeah, come and come and work with us. And, and that was it, you know. She's not the only fanzine editor publisher in your book who says they were greatly influenced by Smash Hits, which in many ways was the antithesis of a fanzine. It was but you know, a big publisher putting out a you know, lyrics and um, you know, lyrics of the top hits with interviews with all the top hit makers. But it was, you know, it, it was started by, um, I think Nick Logan was there at the mm. beginning. And then, of course, David Hepworth and Mark Ellen. And it had that, I guess, if there's anything that connects Smash Hits to fanzines, again, it comes down to not taking it all too seriously, doesn't it? Smash Hits was fun. Yeah. I guess you could forgive Smash Hits a lot of sins because it saw music as being fun, ultimately, right? Yeah, very much so. I I think, again, you know, it comes back to that word irreverence, and, and that's what Smash It's had in, in Bucket Loads. The the more serious music papers, um, like the, the Inkies, um, would ask them a lot more, you know, would ask um, bands and singers more about their albums and the lyrics and what have you, whereas Smash It's wanted to know what colour underpants they were wearing or, you know, <laughs> what they had for breakfast last, you know, yesterday, whatever. Did, does your mother play golf? What colour is Wednesday? All those kind of questions. Um <laughs> And I mean, looking when I was scanning my issues for you, Tony, I'd not looked at these really very carefully for for a few years. The old bag of tricks and candy sticks, but I, you know, I could see my the way I because I'd been a big Smash Hits reader, and um, th- my questions were pretty much lifted unconsciously from the pages of Smash Hits. Definitely interesting. I noticed that although a, uh, a lot of your questions are varied and date tailored to the people you're interviewing and the, the zines they produce you kind of wrap it up by asking everybody what the essence of a fanzine is uh i i think mark who we mentioned earlier mark hawkinson has a has a good response in three words he says uh naivety purity enthusiasm i would add uh and we've already mentioned it, amateurism i think uh, you know it needs to be somewhat amateur to work uh, Pete Perfid has hit on something else interesting. I think he said it almost has to be something no one has asked for, and I thought mm. that was that was that was really interesting. I think now and then people might say, "Well, there isn't a Smiths fanzine, so why don't you do one?" But for the most part, there's a culture of hundreds of fanzines out there already, and we somehow think the world needs another fanzine. And I so I think he hit on something there. But the the thing that I think is most important is that it's a physical product. I think that, that a fanzine is something you hold in your hands. In, in fact, our, our sort of like intro montage of, of, of interviews has that reference. It needs to be something you hold and you go, this is a fanzine. So blogs aren't fanzines, you know, e-zines aren't fanzines. Podcasts, I would say, are modern fanzines, but they're podcasts. So I'm making that claim I'm making that claim to that, but I've gotten about two thirds of the way through the book. I've been reading it chronologically. I still haven't come to how you came up with the title. We peaked at paper. 
Is it in there? Is it in the last third of the book? Yes, it's in the last third of the book. And um, yeah, what you've just said actually is the 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 very thesis that we've sort of um, decided was the one um, absolute, you know, determining factor we would apply to what is or isn't a zine. It's got to be printed on paper. So no, e-zines aren't zines. We decided about that. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, it, I still... Sorry, I, I still think, um, you know, printed matter is um, is is the best way to, to read words, and I'm, I'm going to take that to my grave. Uh, you can take it to Hastings, where there's a great shop called Printed Matter, and they're big on music scenes and music, and sell some vinyl as well. So, uh, yeah, I agree oh, well, with I, you. I would like to do that. I hadn't heard of it, but I believe there's a good crazy golf course down there as well, so maybe I'll... Kill two birds with one stone. <laughs> yeah, a lot of lot of ex-punks from London living down there as well. So, uh, you know, <clears throat> Hastings is one of these thriving places, coastal towns these days, as they all are. Uh, so, yeah, we peaked at paper. So I'm just taking that as, you know, that was the peak of the fanzine culture. I mean, I'm taking that as the reference. I'll look forward to seeing who, who, who mentions it. But it does bring us to, uh, you know, the other big issue with getting fanzines out, finding a printer. So I know that I, I want you to tell me, I guess the question comes to you, Hamish, because you have the answer, how you published this wonderful tome. Oh, well, um, I, um, I basically I work as a freelance editor, production editor. So I'm actually working on a lot of academic books um, and I do copy editing, typesetting, things like that. And as a kind of um, byproduct of that, about sort of six or seven years ago, I set up Boat Whistle Books, um, not to make any money, just to produce a very small number of titles, one or two books a year, um, about things that I'm passionate about. And the first few books were all poetry related, but um, there are a lot of poetry publishers, small poetry presses and uh, I did decide pretty early on I wanted to diversify so the whole context when I was talking to Gavin about the idea for the book was that uh, I would publish it with Boat Whistle and um, I'd do all the all the production work all the typesetting and design and so on. So congratulations on that it is it's beautifully uh, presented and I, I also want to just mention that in the first chapter where you're talking about the science fiction fanzines, you, you, you take a little bit of time as sidebars to talk about the different printing processes that existed because I went through the Gestetner and the Ronio before I got to you know, LIFO printing. Uh, you know, I went through those at school and you reference all of those. So it's very, very, very professionally done. But um, I, I mean, for people who've struggled to sell fanzines at gigs, uh, is you know, how do you, how do you, Managed to put books together in the current market. I mean, you, you know, it feels like taking on a fanzine times 10 or 100 to try and get a, a 300 page book out into the market. Is it just something that you think you, you found quite natural, Hamish? Well, um, I do enjoy the whole process of um, editing, typesetting, all that. That for me is fun. I suppose the the good thing about it, the thing that's made it easier now than it would have been 20 years ago, is uh, printing technologies have made it possible to do relatively short print runs economically. 
Um, but it's, it's, it's harder than ever for a, an independent press to compete, you know, to get shelf space in the bookshops. Everything has become more corporate. Um, independent shops are rarer than they used to be. And um, I don't want to just sort of get onto all the problems of the book trade, but uh, it's, it's very difficult for an independent press. So, I mean, we've... Um, I'm really delighted that We Peaked at Paper has done really much, much better than any of our previous books. And I think what we've tapped into is the fact that there is such a lot of interest out there in fanzines. Um, I almost feel like in the same way that vinyl has had a revival and is growing again year on year, um, the same sort of interest in these older, you know, um, technologies or media um is growing with with fanzines as well so so what is success for you how can i ask how many copies you've done you ask every fanzine producer how many they they printed so what did you print where are you at on this and it hasn't been out long so hopefully you've got loads more to sell yeah uh well i did 450 um i had quite a lot of free ones to give out because we you know we give one to every interviewee and so on so but um we've we've had to reprint already so that's um that's fantastic it's only it had only been out 2 months when we had to reprint a couple more 100 copies that's great um that you mentioned about the technology making it cheaper and easier i remember the first issue of jamming i took to life so somebody hooked me up with a printer one well, my, my my co-editor bandmates dad connected me with a printer and i think we had to print a thousand of jamming 5 just to get the cost down and i think the guy was doing it at cost as a favor just to get the cost down to sell it for what seemed a very exorbitant 25 pence and i only sold 500 at the time i mean now they are collector's items it took me they were on my bedroom floor for the next three four years until they all until they all went so that that change in technology is massive you just in the old days you just couldn't get the cost per issue down without taking either financial gambles or having like a ridiculous connection uh where can people find we peaked at paper well uh it's in all good bookshops and uh, a few bad ones as well but the best place to get it is on boat whistle's own website www.boatwhistle.com or if you google boat whistle it should come up um, right. pretty quickly and you'll you'll find it on there it's a fully secure ordering service and uh free postage within the uk that, that's wonderful oh how much is it by the way i didn't uh either buy it or get a free one i did this old school with gavin we swapped books <laughs> i sent him a jamming compendium i don't know if you know that or not and he sent me one of yours and I, I thought that was just like the old days when we'd send each other fanzines which is another commonality i read with a lot of your interviewees by the way so anyway yeah, what's right. the uh, yeah uh oh i see what it is I'm, i've got my copy here 20 pounds uh 20 pounds you do a lot of repro inside not in color but you do reproduce a lot of fanzine covers um all right i don't have much longer to talk to you so quick answer um what do i have to look forward to in the last third of the book i've had the football fanzine interview i've got the band fanzine interview uh what sounds what's like you haven't got to the saskia holling one yet no um, i haven't fanzine called heavy flow which is a really interesting one so that's around the time of riot girl and it really follows on from a blaze and exactly what you were saying about the way um prior to that period there weren't 
there were very, very few female fanzine editors, but Riot Girl really changed all that. So we sort of track the effect of Riot Girl, and then we move on through the 90s to around the time when I would say the internet became accessible for everyone um, around the millennium. And I was curious about what effect that would have had on the number of fanzines that are around and why would someone keep doing a fanzine in the age of the internet? So there are the last few chapters are about people who are still producing fanzines and why they're doing it. And, uh, you know, they're fantastic, fantastic fanzines. So I hope you'll enjoy those chapters when you get to them. I'm sure I will. That that brings me to one of my two remaining questions. Uh, name me, if you would like, if you can, each one great fanzine currently in print that people should check out. You go first, Gary. <laughs> okay, I'll just... Uh, I would go with uh, Selena Laverne Day, who... Um, is interviewed is yet to be uh, you know in the book that you've yet to read um tony she's done lots of great ones i i really enjoyed i'm just trying to get the title of it so i don't get it wrong she did one about being a, a placebo fan which oh I really my son's a, my son is a massive placebo fan he did a cover zp of them oh, so, okay well yeah. without you i'm nothing that was it so oh. i would recommend that right I, I'm going to recommend The Hegelian by Elias Nebula, um, which is, I, I mean, as I said, we wanted to cover obscure fanzines and they don't get much more obscure than that. It's called The Hegelian, but it has absolutely nothing to do with Hegel, but it's very much uh, a, a personal fanzine, just about whatever is going on in the editor's life. And Elias Nebula is a brilliant writer. Um, so it's, you know, I'd... Uh, I'd implore anyone to try and get hold of a copy of that if they can. If I can get the info, we'll put a couple of links in at the end of this. Right, I got. Uh, we're going to go out with as much fun as we've had so far. Thank you so much for taking uh, the time time to do this, but more so for taking the time to put the book together. I, I once I got into it, I got really thoroughly immersed and and just like loving the conversations and uh, whole cultures. I'd moved to the states by the time most of these fanzines came out, so. It's really informative for me, and it's not the period that I'm so used to for the most part. Um, favorite fanzine title ever? And I know how on the spot these questions are, and I was trying to think of mine, and it's not that easy. Uh, but fanzines, as we note, can be irreverent. Do you have a favorite fanzine title to send us home on? I, uh, the one that comes to mind for me, it's called Country Living, and that's country with the O missing. <laughs> so that's another... That's another uh, feminist fanzine. Right. I think for me, there's one I remember. I hope I got the title right. I think it was called Trout Fishing in Leytonstone. Mm. Yeah, that's a great one, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> that, that, is a, that is a great title. Uh, it, it's like band names. Uh, there, there was certainly a period of just incredible band names. So, uh, yeah, this is truly wonderful. Uh, again, Thanks for being part of this. Thanks for uh, dedicating yourselves to, 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 to the history of fanzines and for making the book professional and fun. I think you've, you've done the culture as great service. And I hope people get their hands on the book. Cheers. Thanks, Tony. That's great. Thank you. 
As ever, I've had to listen back to that interview quite a lot just to do the editing. And the more I listen to it, the harder it's been to cut anything because it was such an excellent conversation for which I definitely thank Gavin and Hamish. And it's in large part because their book, I think it's worth observing now, and I didn't in the interview, that it's called An Oral History of British Zines, not Fanzines. And that's probably because as we move into the current millennium, the, and, and I got towards the final chapters. And fortunately, I'm happy to say uh, that, that the females actually dominate the final chapters. We got more and more into uh, what you heard them reference as perzines and comp zines. Um, perzine, I guess, is just a personal fanzine as opposed to a sort of music or football fanzine and a comp zine is a sort of collaboration between two people that may be uh, remote from each other I mean to be honest that's latter one is not new to me and I guess the perzine is not new either if you allow that uh, people have always sort of published uh, personal pamphlets of of some kind or other I do think there's something about the layout of a fanzine that as much as we know it's a physical product it's on paper I think there's something in the approach in that DIY ethic that makes it the fanzine and I think some of us just have a need to communicate and share our thoughts and I'm or share our observations or talk to other people and share that I would consider myself one of those people I've gone from fanzine that grew into a magazine I blogged when the that was really fun and html was do it yourself starting that up in the year 2000 now I'm doing a podcast because it's a similar thing and to the extent that we joke that podcasts are fanzines I might say podcasts are publications and like publications they can be very professional or very amateur and there is uh, no entry level to doing them it's just about how good you want to make them or deliberately amateur you want to make them Gavin asked me to mention that he is the co-host of his own podcast uh, called The Giddy Carousel of Pop, a Smash Hits podcast. I think that's self-explanatory. We discussed Smash Hits quite a bit in the previous interview. I should also reference that Jamming shared a couple of contributors with Smash Hits, most notably Chris Heath. You can go back to the first series and find the interview with him and Russell Young. Looking ahead, the next episode, I teased it during that interview. It's with Alan Ryder, who had a fanzine in Coventry called Adventures in Reality. And it's with Graham Burnett, who had a fanzine in South End called New Crimes. What they have in common is both of them have put together books about the history of their city's fanzines. Um, Alan's is more about the punk post-punk period. Graham's is as ambitious as we peaked at paper. And it's got 50 years of South End's alternative press in there. That interview is in the can, so I know that one's coming down the line. Beyond that, I'm happy to say I got in touch uh, uh, again with Karen Blaze. She's up for doing something. And so is Tony D of the infamous Ripton Torn and Kill Your Pet Puppy. Very important fanzines. We're also going to feature Tom, not Tony, that's me. I'm Tony Fletcher. Tom Vague, who, of course, had a vague fanzine. He's got a book coming out later this spring. So uh, he's going to be up for it as well. I look forward to doing this and then expanding sort of internationally and forward and past and really anything that considers itself a zine. And again, the, the, the later you get into, uh, we peaked at paper the more you realize like these perzines get done in weird sizes and they can be one-offs and sometimes have really really small 
print runs. Uh, so there's just so many aspects of this that we can cover. I think that the, the music fanzine may be the mainstay, just given the title of this podcast. And one final thing before I sign off, podcasts can be one-way traffic, more so than fanzines where you'd exchange them in the mail. You don't tend to do that with podcasts. They're kind of hard to fit in an envelope. So I'd like to encourage you to find me on social media. I'll put all of these links, a whole bunch of links in the show notes. Reach out to me and let me know who you might want to see here featured uh, or just let me know that this is kind of doing the job and it'll be nice to keep this a bit more of a two-way street in the meantime keep on keeping on <laughs>